0: So I think just educating, reading books like that, and then just networking with people just networking with people that you're building relationships with. Whether or not you plan on investing today or in three years, four years, you really are the outcome of the relationships that you've developed.
1: Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host. Socket Jane. Welcome back, my great to wealth listeners. Today we have the pleasure to talk to Dennis Shapiro. He's one of the few ones that, that few few podcast guests that we have so far who is operating multiple asset classes. Who is who's pretty bullish in a lot of them as well. Without bringing him is actually going to be very helpful to give you a perspective of somebody who is not who is not only raising capital. Or co-partnering with the asset managers on the other on, on different asset classes, but is actually an operator and an investor. So that's really what we thought we'll bring Dennis for. Dennis, how are you, buddy? Thank you again for jumping on the podcast. Doing great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Dennis. Before we actually go into your full full-fledged introduction, which is going to come out, I want to ask a question. What is the when you think about migrate to wealth? What does that mean to you?
0: So personally, I come from an immigrant background. I I wasn't born in this country. So we came here with very little, you know, the typical, you know, only the dollars in your pockets type of thing. So Migrate to Wealth is just about this lifelong journey of growth. And it's not only a financial journey, wealth of knowledge, especially knowledge in terms of relationships that's what I think of when I think of migrate to wealth of just bettering yourself growth and bettering others around you. Yeah, no, I think that's really that's the essence of our show. So thank you again
1: for imbibing that spirit. So Dennis, what is your story about migrating to wealth? Help us understand that.
0: Yeah. So I started fairly young at, you know, when I was in high school, my oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad Poor Dad. I read the book disliked it at the time because I thought he made more money on his tours and his book sales than what he was actually talking about. I was a little bit of a cynic. Like I did get started investing. I started with stocks. So Dennis, help us understand when. what is your migration to wealth Journey? So I started fairly young. My oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was in high school, read the book. I was a little bit cynical on the book at that time just because I thought he was making more money on his book tours and book sales than what he actually preached in the book. But i got started investing in stocks at the time i went through high school wanted to be the next warren buffett got out of college right in the smack of the global financial crisis so i couldn't find a job couldn't find anything so i did you know the logical thing and went back for more school because that's always the answer so i went back for my mba during my mba i got recruited by the government i started working for the government and then i got my first w2 paycheck and I was like, wow, the government's not only my employer, they're also my business partner with the amount of taxes they're taking out. And silent, so start, silent business partner. Right. So I Googled, you know, how do I pay less taxes? The first couple of uh, answers were semi-legal. I so said, then I actually went back and said, you know, how do I pay less taxes legally? And the first like 10 things were all real estate related. So then I did probably the stupidest thing you could do. I asked my older brother who had a portfolio at the time, I said, well, Do you have any property that you want to sell? I kind of need write offs. So he looked at his whole portfolio. He's like, oh, this one's the biggest headache. And he gave it to me. And then that was a single family in a low income area. And I cut my teeth on that property. There was not really enough money for property management, but I made every mistake under the sun. And then I realized, you know, I kind of wanted to go more passive at that point. I was still working full time for the government. And That's kind of when I found out about securities and syndications, and I did my first syndication when I was just as an LP in 2014. I grew that side of my portfolio substantially, and then in 2018, I actually created an investment club where two other individuals found out what I was doing, wanted to kind of like participate. So I got together with a couple other individuals. We started make we started co investing in various LP deals, that actually allowed me to get a lot of data and allowed me to actually see which deals work, which don't work because I was doing a lot of uh, higher volume of those kind of deals. And then when I started really looking back at it, I kind of started pinpointing things that I would be differently. And then once I started thinking that way, it was like a pathway I ended up doing a couple of joint ventures. And then from there, I got on the full side of just the operational side. So it was definitely a long journey. It wasn't overnight, but it was a 10-year journey of you know being just an LP to doing an investment club, to doing JVs, and then to switching over and doing general partners.
1: That's awesome. Dennis, thank you again for going through that, going to that breakdown of your journey. One thing I want to ask is about passive. Let's start from passive, right? Because you picked up a headache from your brother and you asked for it. It's not like he gave it to you. So, and then you realized what was going through your mind that made you move into passive? Is it just amount of work or lack of understanding? What was your reason? Of course, you're also working full time. So uh, what
0: made you go, full, go heavy on passive investing? So that's a good question. So th- the first thing is I was looking at the amount of time that I was spending on this one single family And then I was like, well, to make significant money, I would need 30 of these. And then I said, well, if I time 30 by the amount of time I was spending here, this would be impossible. So one, I just thought from a time perspective, it wasn't really a good use of my time. Uh, then I started researching more passive ways of investing. And I just, you know, I found like hard money lending and I think it was like distressed mortgages. But at the same time, didn't want to go through the path of figuring out how to do all of that stuff myself. And then I found the fund that was actually doing it, and then I just put two and two together I was like, wow, this is a lot simpler, good track record." I was like, let me try this approach and get all the benefits of that asset class without actually doing all the homework and yeah. you know these days much more educationally focused before investing in the syndication but at the same time when I was ten years ago uh, when I was first starting out, your learning curve is so significant that you know wow. If you eat the high level marketing of some of these places, you're like, oh yeah, I know what they're talking about. Let me just invest. So it was one of those situations uh, a decade ago.
1: Yeah. And also, I think if you were to understand every single thing, then you'll never invest. So I think it's, it's a fine balance between the two. So Dennis, at that point when you shifted from managing that one property that you bought from your brother to now investing passively, were you still investing in single family or did you pick a different asset class? Glass.
0: No, so that's when I did the note fund. After that, and then I went. That's it. Yeah, I did the note fund passively as an LP, and then I got into uh, multifamily syndications as LP. Got it. And notes and or note. Let's let's talk about note for a second because we haven't.
1: I think we have a few guests. We've talked about notes a little bit. When you were looking, so thinking from the what you got, what triggered you was the government being a silent partner. For you in your taxes, as and you have to pay them taxes, right? And of course, having a single family would have helped a little bit there. But how does the note help, or did it, did the note help in your tax savings at all, or was that's the was was the reasoning at that time? I shifted to more passive income and taxing.
0: Yeah, at that point, it, it shifted over to just more passive income. That single family really did the trick in terms between single family and then you know, four hundred one k investing yeah. really lowered my. T- considerably. So at that point, it was more switching over to passive. Note funds in general are not really great tax vehicles unless you're doing it in self-directed because there's less depreciation to offset the income that the fund is producing. Uh, So it's the balancing act because the cash flow is going to be better than what you'd get in a typical multifamily syndication. But at the same time, if you're a high earner in a high tax bracket, it might might not always be the best thing for you unless you're doing it through a self-directed. Yeah, no,
1: I I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more there, Dennis. So Dennis, let's now move let's fast forward from the journey. So um now assuming are you still with the Fed or you're you're now done with the job?
0: Uh yeah, I, I semi retired last year. So we we ended up in a spin-off business related to what I was doing for the government, but it's it's for myself and and that's a separate entity than the uh real estate holdings.
1: Got it. So now, now let's, let's focus on the real estate for now, and then we'll go on the other one if, if there's a need. So when we look at now your real estate portfolio, I'm assuming you're more active now. You're still
0: active and passive together. How does your portfolio look right now for real estate? It's definitely transformed from 100% passive, I would say, three to four years ago, where I still have a few passive deals going through its life cycle. But at this point, our company and the Capital Group, we don't invest in any. Any opportunity, unless we have some kind of operational insight, okay. and that goes from everything from completely running the project, like we do on our affordable housing side, to just a lead, to joint venturing where we're not the lead operators, but we have access to the property management software. We have we sit on on the calls, we visit the property, we we do that with certain asset classes like self storage. So we do a little bit of few different asset classes, but it's more based on partnerships than fundamentals of that asset class because i'm a firm believer of at the end of the day it's really the operator that's going to make a good deal all us so that's kind of always I, I think you're you're really
1: you're less i think sometimes uh especially the environment right now it's less about the asset it's really about the operator because a good operator in this market can turn a bad deal around for good
0: yeah one he, he always said i don't want to butcher but he always said a good operator could Make a bad deal whole. Yeah. And that operator could make the best deal n- negative or like a right. l- loss of something that nature. So I've always subscribed to that. And that's why we fundamentally, we've switched where even if we're not the lead operator, and usually we are, but even if we're not the lead operational, we're not just writing out checks and saying, okay, you know, here, here you go. And that's forced us to really partner with certain type of operators. So we can't really go out and partner with you know someone who has $500 million in assets on the management because we don't provide them any value. But someone who has, you know, let's say, $10 to $20 million in assets on the management, and we could come in, then we provide tons of value. And we almost come out like a board of directors for that deal because we've seen so many deals. Sure. So it's all about providing value to your partners and to your investors. Yeah, no, I
1: agree, man. I think I think that completely makes sense to me. I think the the world is shifting, anyways. Uh, there's a good need for there's going to be a need for good operators moving forward. The times that we were living in three, four, five years ago has drastically changed, because at that time I was even hearing uh, folks saying, "Just buy something; your mistakes will be corrected by the market." Just not a good way to buy, right? Those times have shifted. Those times have gone.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people are getting out of the business. And unfortunately, you know, some syndicators have, I think, created a bad stigma to syndications. You know, we tend to partner with operators who are second generation. Like we 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 have one partnership with a mobile home park operator. He's around my age, but he's bought his parents out ten years ago. And then he's expanded from three to twelve cars. Right. So we're coming in and we're partnering with him because He's been able to kind of burr out these mobile home parks one after another. The burr strategy right now is dead because of the interest rates. So, all of a sudden, right now, he sees us and our five year relationship together where he's invested with us on certain projects. And he sees that as a logical stepping stone where he's not going to, he doesn't have an investor relationship. He doesn't have anything. He's literally used family money to acquire one property at a time. Those are the operators. We're not trying to partner with a new operator that's been doing it for a year or two, that makes no sense to us. But if we could no. find someone who's got a decade plus of experience and his family had like 40 years experience in the mobile home park space, has geographic focus in a certain area, like he owns 11 out of the 15 parks of that M- MSA. For, so when we find things like that, we really embrace those partnerships. We really provide maximum value. And that's what Allowing our investors to get access to deals like that is kind of what we're special, what makes SIH Capital Group different and special.
1: Perfect. Now, that makes sense. And then I know we opened the show up, with right now you have access to multiple asset classes that you are either invested in or you're, you're operating in, it seems like as forward, unless you have an operational insight, if, even if you're not the lead operator that yourself, that's the goal moving forward. So help
0: us understand, what asset classes are you bullish on right now? So number one is affordable housing. That's our bread and butter. When it's any affordable housing deal, we are the lead operator on that because we, we, that's where we're going out to acquire. What does that mean? I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you. What is affordable housing? Because
1: it could mean a lot of different things. So it could mean a mobile home park. It could mean, you know, the apartments that have affordable ADUs. It could mean a lot of different things. Could you explain to me and our listeners what exactly you mean by that term?
0: Sure. So we deal in the low income housing tax credit space. So basically the government incentivizes developers to build affordable housing. The way that they do it, I, I like to explain it this way. If you have a real piece of land, the cost to build that raw piece of land is surprisingly similar with affordable or a class A beautiful property. The reason is you need the foundation, the electric, you need the plumbing, you need roofs, you need the windows, you need all But what's different is that last mile of finishings, right? Instead of Quartz countertops. You're probably putting laminate countertops with affordable housing. True. So, n- no builder would ever turn around and, by the goodness of their heart, build a brand new building and then just say, "Well, we're going to just put this as affordable." So, the way that they, the government, kind of incentivizes them, they give these low income housing tax credit, and it allows the developer to build communities, and then in exchange they get huge credits, and then these, and then in exchange their property. Is subject to income restrictions for usually for two 15 year periods. So during the first 15 year period, it's they're highly incentivized to keeping that property because of the all the breaks. In that second 15 year period, those restrictions kind of they're still in place, but the credits are no longer there. So they tend to look to sell at that point, And that's when we come in and we look to buy. So these are townhouse communities. They look like your regular class B properties, but you, you what you get is that we can only put in people in there that have certain income restrictions in there. And on top of that, we also do deal with vouchers, like your project-based vouchers or tenant-based vouchers okay. people call Section 8. So it's a little bit more complicated because it's multifamily that's less dependent on value-add. Uh, we have a waiting list to get into our properties. And then we get a certain amount of, on the first of the month, we get a certain amount of the rent paid by the government. So we really like the model. There's the waiting list is there, like supply and demand just gets worse and worse when it comes to affordable housing. There's also a barrier of entry. If you're a new operator, you're not going into affordable housing. It's a lot of bureaucracy. It's a lot of red tape. You usually have to be cert- you usually have to be approved by the state to even get to close on that property because the state doesn't want anybody just taking over that affordable housing community because things have gone bad before with other operators so it's the only commercial real estate space that i know that has a real competitive barrier to it and it has a huge waiting list and you don't have to go in there and renovate these apartments to put brand new fixtures so we really like the space
1: dennis which markets are you in right now for affordable housing
0: we're actually in the Northeast, so we, we are in the Pennsylvania area outside of Philadelphia. We don't like to go to Philadelphia because it's too tenant-friendly, but we like the fairness, so we're outside of Pennsylvania. One, two of our partners are from Pennsylvania, and I'm from New Jersey, so we like to stay somewhat local. Got it. So is it in New Jersey, or is it in Philly? It? It's in Pennsylvania. It's in Chester County, Pennsylvania, uh, RRF4 Black. Awesome.
1: So what are the other asset classes, Dennis? I know we talked about affordable housing units as one.
0: What are the others? So we do have a short-term rental division where we buy short-term rentals, but at scale. So multiple units on one property. We don't believe in the whole single family scattered around type of portfolios that you kind of see right now that's going mainstream in the short-term rental space. So we have uh, nine beach bungalows in the Jersey Shore area. It's a It, again, has its own barriers of entry, extremely high cost per unit, but you're getting an extremely high dollar rate. And there's also great plan Bs and plan Cs if the short-term rentals don't work out. And are you managing them yourself, Dennis? We have. So a, a, both on the affordable housing side and the short-term rental side, we have built out management companies t- to oversee them. We're a firm believer of vertically integrating property management. Uh, when I was doing my club the number one reason an operator would give for a deal ring is bad property management so fairly early on that was a core focus of us you know we're not a thousand units but we focus on high occupancy our affordable housing is almost 100% occupied short-term rentals we do great and the only reason why we could do that is because we oversee our property management ourselves awesome any other asset class dennis so we we have joint ventured and self storage. We're not the lead operators there, and we're also buying right now residential, commercial, real estate. That's not really affordable housing, but it's in uh, Ohio where we're using a strategy that we really like right now, where we're buying basically all cash, smaller multifamily, or you know have like a heavy down payment of fifty percent or greater. But the goal is to buy it, hold on to it until the interest rates go down, and then refi out. So we just did an acquisition like that in, in October, and we're looking to do more acquisitions. Why in Ohio? So it's only seven hours away from... It, so it's five hours away from our other property. So it's actually not that far. And it's just one of the partnerships that we've developed. is uh, out there. He has the uncanny ability of getting these deals. So they're not broker-related. He has great relationships with older sellers that are looking to pivot out. So, we're able to negotiate, you know, sell the financing in these deals. And it's just the way it works out. We're not very, we're not really active on acquisitions. We really just have these strategic partnerships where they kind of have the deals. They bring the deals after they're kind of vetted on and they're in contract. And if we we come in and partner on them. Got it. And then are you able to share which market in Ohio it is? Yeah, it was
1: in uh, Canton, Ohio. Canton, Ohio. Got it. Awesome. Well, Dennis, I know we're running short on time here, so I'm going to quickly switch gears here. In the last 20-ish minutes, Haby, is there anything that you believe our audience would benefit from that we haven't discussed, haven't had a chance? I'm sure there's a lot that we had a because we just barely scratched the surface. So are there some key insights, one or two insights that you can share with the audience that's going to give them an edge as they delve into the investing in these tumultuous times?
0: Yeah, I, I would say right now is a great time to focus on just educating yourself. I published a book, The Alternative Investment Almanac Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non Traditional Ways. like uh, find that on Amazon. And basically, I wanted to summarize everything I was learning for the last 10 years and being an investor. And the way we, we structured that book is that we have an introduction to the asset class. So, like for example, self storage, uh, multifamily, mobile home parks, you'll get an introduction into the actual asset class and then you get a Q&A and it's the same Q&A for every single investor I interviewed in this book. And I interviewed two investors per asset class. So it's a great way to really dive into a certain asset class without spending 400 pages, without reading 400 pages on one specific asset class. So you could read it, you could read, you know, lending versus, you know, multifamily and then make a decision for yourself, you know, this is better or this is not. So I think just educating, reading books like that, and then just networking with people in in your, just networking with people that you're building relationships with. Whether or not you plan on investing today or in three years, four years, you really are the outcome of the relationships that you've developed. And I'm a firm believer in that. So even if you're not doing deals, don't waste the time and spend time talking with people who are either investing or what they're seeing in the market, and that will you know those type of returns are exponential
1: awesome dennis this is amazing thank you again for getting jumping on i wish we, we had more time with you i don't know you're busy as well so well, what we'll do is we'll probably set up another call with you to do maybe a detailed webinar and thank you again for sharing your books resource we'll make sure it's included on the show notes below mm-hmm. well thank you again dennis appreciate it buddy if you got value from this episode you might consider sharing this content with a friend But most importantly,
0: be sure to take action on
1: what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.